Take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 56. We're going to tackle 56 and 57, though I'm only going to read 56. As a reminder, have you ever caught yourself thinking, man, I, I wish God would just tell me what to do. <laughs> I wish he'd just let me know what to do. He's about to do that. He's about to speak to you in his word. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, the son of the man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, well, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs, who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, These I will bring to my holy mountain, make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. All you beasts of the field come to devour, all you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind, they are all without knowledge, they are all silent dogs and cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite, they never have enough, but they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. Let's pray. Now, Lord, we do humbly ask that you would speak and that we would hear, not just in the reading as we have done, but now in its preaching. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you take my cough away uh, so I wouldn't be coughing in the microphone the whole time. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Sometimes, this might be surprising to some of you, but sometimes Presbyterians have gotten a little bit of a bad rap in church history. Sometimes, however, I think perhaps maybe that is a bit deserved in one of the areas where sometimes we have been, we might say, affectionately and familiarly teased by other branches of the church uh, is that we have been dubbed the frozen chosen. Being a Presbyterian pastor in the middle of a Baptist school, this is a term that I've 
received many times as I tease with my fellow classmates and the men that I love and as we study together. And what they get at, actually, and that is not uh, simply sometimes that we can be a bit reserved in our uh, demonstration of emotion. We're not the only branch of the Lord's church that does that. You want to see some really reserved branches, you can go to a lot of Anglican churches or other places and very reserved people. But sometimes it has fit because there have been some pockets of the Reformed church that we might say have become so reformed that they've become useless. They've taken such great pride and confidence and comfort in God's greatness that they've become absolutely worthless in the places that they live. So filled with kind of this big picture God that they've stopped listening, actually, to what he has to say to them. In fact, we kind of got at it in our confession of faith already. I I tipped my hand where the sermon was headed. What do we believe regarding good works? How do I know that my life is not a waste? If I believe that God is sovereign, which I do, if I believe that that means he's in charge of all things, which I do, if, if I believe that he's so big that nothing can frustrate anything that he, he plans to do, which is exactly what the Bible says, then why does my life matter at all? If he's that powerful, why does my day-to-day life matter? Why does my decision-making matter? Why does uh, my obedience matter? Why does, why does really anything matter, honestly? Why, why not just be a robot, an automaton that he's planned out and controls and just kind of set on a path and then walks and talks however he deems fit? Well, the passage today gets at that, really, um, perhaps in ways that are maybe not as direct as we might see on the surface at first, but he, he's going to strike at that idea of why, why does our life matter? And now we, we've entered kind of into a new part of the book of Isaiah where we've, we've largely left the grumpy and sad and horrible parts behind and are now turning into the section that is largely uh, optimistic and future-oriented in this reign of the, the suffering servant, the Messiah, who is coming We get this introduced with really the Lord explaining what his plan is in verses 1 and 2. This is the Lord explaining uh, to his listener, to his reader, to his people, what he intends for creation. Thus says the Lord, you, my people, keep justice and do righteousness, so obey You need to be busy in obeying. You need to be busy in doing that which God himself has commanded. Why? Because my salvation will soon come and my righteousness be revealed. And blessed is the man who does this. Blessed is the son of the man who holds it fast. It's, it's interesting. He, he lays out functionally kind of his game plan for your life inside creation. Obey. Obey, obey, obey. Why? Because 
Is he the angry father who shows up and is going to nitpick everything that you've done? I think everybody probably has had that person in their life. Maybe it's a, a boss, a family member, a spouse, whatever, you know, doesn't matter, teacher, where they nitpicked perfection to such a level that if you turned out something brilliant, they would find something wrong with it. Doesn't matter how good or wonderful it is, like Da Vinci could do something and they would find something wrong with Da Vinci's work. Is that, how, is, is that how our God sees us and sees our lives? Is, is he constantly nitpicking his children just kind of as a miserable old cuss looking at how we live? Well, no, actually. <laughs> no, actually, he's framing it out in such wonderful terms to say, look, the reason why you need to obey people of God It's because salvation is coming. And and remember, when the Bible uses the term salvation, it almost always does not mean what the American church has reduced it to, right? We in the American church have largely reduced that to mean kind of conversion. And almost certainly when that word is used in the English Bible, it's not referring to conversion. It it usually, weirdly enough, it refers to heaven more often than it refers to conversion, Here, it's not referring to conversion. It is referring to the whole kind of salvific process of God ultimately culminating in the new heavens and new earth. But he's saying, interestingly, obey. And you ought to obey because this entire kind of salvific process is coming. In fact, for them, the Messiah is not that far away, several hundred years, six or so. And when he shows up, it will be blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing. He takes our good works and he rewards them. This is, I think, an idea that many of us intellectually have heard. If you've grown up in the church for any length of time, if you've been in this church for any length of time, this is a talking point I take with great regularity, but it's one of those things, and I think realistically, most of us have in our brains, but somehow never really makes the journey down the digestive tract to our hearts. I know the heart's not in the digestive tract. It never makes it into our hearts. We don't, it doesn't impact what we think and what we feel and how we obey. It, it doesn't shape our daily living. This idea that the Lord rewards every bit of obedience, and he doesn't do it from a nitpicking perspective. He does it from a generous perspective. So perhaps maybe you've had that friend in your life who um, we might generously say gets a bit more excited than the situation deserves. Right? Like he, you, you, you came home and you know, you have a little minor victory in your life and they respond like this little minor victory is like this big of a victory. Like, wow, wow, okay. I mean, it's good, but it's not that good. Uh, Weirdly, I suspect actually the Lord probably views our good works more from that perspective than any other. That even when we're obedient and we think we've been obedient this much, that he he responds so much over the top in delight. Look at what my, look what my kid's doing. Look at what my child has done. Look at them, they won. I mean, but it was a win, I'll tell you, yay. 
Right? Think about parents. Think about how many of you have artwork from your children saved. That's absolutely dreadful artwork. It's horrid. But it's lovely because they did it and they did it for you. And it means something in, in your responses over the top. Certainly for what it deserves, right? Took them 12 seconds with one crayon. Hideous. You're going to save it for the rest of your life. He's over the top in his generosity. Now, he introduces just a couple of categories that are following that I think perhaps need to really alter how we view ourselves in light of obedience. I'm going to contend the first example that he kind of gets at here is very brief, but gets at what I'm going to kind of call imposter syndrome. I mean, it's, it's, that's a commonly used term. If you don't know what that is, is it's when you, you get into a new situation and you think, I just don't belong here. Like everybody else belongs here, but I just don't belong here. And in reality, I know there are, there are members of the church that look around and say, everybody else is so spiritually mature. Everybody else is so, so good and godly and handsome and beautiful and funny and pleasant and personal. They deserve to be blessed, but I don't because I'm a mess. I feel a little bit like a fraud. I feel like I don't belong. Like, they're the good people, and I'm not. I mean, have you seen them? Like, have you smelled them? Even their cologne or perfume is nice. Like, everything about them is good. And I'm just not. I, I feel... I feel a little bit of like an imposter, like I don't fit in. And I love how verse 3, he, he goes to explain what that blessing looks like, right? Verse 2 ends with God's going to bless his people, and he's going to bless his people kind of abundantly and over the top. He's going to do it for obedience. He's going to honor their good works, even though they're not very good at it, but he's still going to do it. Verse 3, he then gets at this, the foreigner. Let not the foreigner who's joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Right, so the, the foreigner, and again, we, we, this has different emotional baggage for us today, right? That term probably has more political baggage for us than it did theological baggage. And the original reader, the theological baggage here would be a foreigner would be a person who does not belong in God's presence. It's the unbeliever, the unregenerate, the one who does not know the Lord. And here, it's actually a person who is not raised Jewish, who is not raised inside the community of faith, who has converted, who's come from a pagan nation, a pagan past, a pagan lifestyle. They probably have baggage. I mean, they've probably got a story. They've got a past. But yet, they've joined themselves to the Lord. They're seeking to obey Him. And interestingly, he gets at it with this blessing to say, look, don't even let that person say, well, when it comes time for blessing, the Lord's only going to bless his own. I'm an outsider. I, I'm a fraud that's still just hanging here. I mean, I love the Lord and I'm, I'm trying to obey him, but when it comes down to it, he's going to bless the good people and not people like me. I know my own heart. And I love how here you have the Lord actually addressing that. If you know him, 
If you are in Christ, if you have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, if you have been united with Christ and He has paid the once-for-all punishment for your sin, friend, you have nothing to worry about. Yeah, you've got a past. Most of us do. Yeah, you have a present. Well, some of us do. In fact, actually, you might have a future, which more than a couple of us will. But the Lord still loves you. He still receives your good works. He still delights in them and over them the same way that we might with our children and their wonderful artwork. The second one, I think, is a bit more intentional, a bit more full, and I I suspect probably a bit more emotional. It's the eunuch. A eunuch was a man who was uh, functionally neutered, either intentionally or just by birth, who was used oftentimes for very specific tasks, often employed by ancient Near Eastern kings because they could largely be trusted not to cause too much trouble in certain ways in dealing with their wives and such. But the significant part of a eunuch is that they were damaged. And they were damaged in their body and broken in such a way that they were not permitted to go before the Lord in his house. These would be men that actively could never go into the presence of God. They are broken sacrifices. Whereas the foreigner would be concerned of saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm an outsider and I'm never going to be anything but an outsider. The eunuch is the person who's kind of looking at themselves saying, I'm too broken for God to love me. Either my pain is too great for God to love me or my sin is too great for God to love me or my past is too great for God to love me. I'm damaged goods. For thus says the Lord, verse 4, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who, who, who obey, who choose the things that please me, who obey, who hold fast my covenant, who obey. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument. So you damaged person, the Lord loves you so much that even in his place, he's going to set aside positions of glory and honor. A monument and a name that's better than sons and daughters. That's wild to think about, isn't it? The one thing that the eunuch's damage prevents him from being able to pursue, he can never have a family. Right? Those parts don't work. He can't make children. He can't father any lineage or line. And here God's saying, look, I'm going to actually give you honor that surpasses that which children can provide. I'll give you glory and joy and delight. In fact, even give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Amazing. Isaiah jumps back. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord and minister to him and love the name of the Lord to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. I will make them joyful in my house. It's shocking, actually, that in a book that has largely been dealing with Israel being knuckleheads and disobeying, here you have in kind of the major turning point into the, the happy part of the book 
the Lord saying, my heart is to bless my people. And the kind of people that I want to bless and rejoice in and delight over and bring into my presence for all eternity are the kind of people that everybody thinks would never belong or are too broken to be useful. Those are my people. Those are my people. Now, we have Jesus take this up in a slightly different way in his ministry where he's like, doctors aren't needed by well people. It's sick people that need doctors. And he's the greatest doctor ever, and so he came for the sickest of the sick. Verses 7 and 8, though, you get to see this where the Lord's saying, look, these are the people that I want on my holy mountain. And I want to make them joyful. Filled with delight, their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted. I'm going to receive them. I'm going to receive their worship. I'm going to receive them. In fact, actually, my house will be called a house of prayer because I will receive their prayers. The Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel declares, I'm going to gather more outcasts. More of those people that you think might possibly potentially be useless and make them into something great. I'm going to make them into my church. And I love how actually you get to watch this be fulfilled in some sense in the the very gospels themselves. The Messiah that's been prophesied in this book, chapter 53 especially, he shows up his ministry, Jesus Christ, and uh, as he begins his ministry, he begins collecting these kinds of guys. Not foreigners and eunuchs per se, But those guys that kind of nobody really would have been overawed by. Not the most impressive, right? He collects tax collectors. He collects fishermen. You think about really his disciples is really, it's a who's who of nobodies. And if you read all four gospels, they basically continue as a who's who of nobodies and really mess ups the entire bit. Every once in a while, one of them will do something where you're like, ah, he's not an idiot for a change. That's great. I'm really proud of him. But then like three verses later, you're like, oh, what a mess. And these men who are absolute, just largely disasters throughout the Gospels, continue into the book of Acts, and they receive the Holy Spirit, and they're transformed from being these just kind of goobers into the greatest church planting force the world has ever seen. And the church would defeat all of their enemies functionally in the space of just a matter of a few hundred years, spread the entirety of the globe, built on those men's ministry. It's shocking. Guys who were too slow to get it for a lot of the time, their faith uh, is, is certainly, uh, you know, hit or miss. At one point, one of them even rebukes Jesus for kind of making mistakes strategically. Like, you understand that he's God. What are you doing? Rebuking God? I'm confused. And yet here, these mess-ups are made into something absolutely brilliant. Absolutely marvelous. Every one of them, save the one who died, the ministry is unbelievable. What they're used to do to take the gospel to the far reaches of the world, to build a church that continues to grow, that continues to flourish, it's shocking. 
the Lord blesses his people. He loves obedience. And the contrast is then held here, verses 9 through 12. Whereas in verses 3 through 8, salvation is offered to the broken. The Lord delights in the broken. 9 through 12, um, it's really gotten at that salvation isn't by proximity. Just because you're, you're near to the places of God, near to the people of God, it doesn't mean that you know God. Here he turns to the, the, the leaders of Israel. These are the people that largely live in Jerusalem. These are the people that are responsible for the nation. These are the people that would know the most, who have been trained the most, who would be, in theory, those that would be equipped to lead God's, lead God's people into all goodness. And yet the Lord is not very gentle with them. I don't know if you caught it. All you beasts of the field come to devour. All you beasts in the forest. And that's never a good start. His watchmen are blind. They're all without knowledge. So now he's speaking to the leaders of Israel. He's calling them watchmen. And he functionally names them my dog. The world's laziest dog. All the dog wants to do is sleep and eat. It's my dog. His watchmen are blind, they're without knowledge, they're silent dogs, they can't bark, they're dreaming, they lie down, they love to slumber, all they do is have a mighty appetite, they never eat enough. They're just lazy bones dogs, they're useless things. So the people that, that would be in the places that you would expect salvation to reside are not the people that are getting salvation here. Put differently, just because you're in the place that salvation is doesn't mean you get it. said maybe more pointedly in southern speech, just because you grew up in the church doesn't mean you know Jesus. Just because you grew up hearing my voice, just because uh, some of you in here, you could recognize my voice in utero from every Sunday, hearing it in the womb. That doesn't mean that you're necessarily saved, though. Just because you come to church just because you've heard preaching your whole life, just because you went to Sunday school some of the time, doesn't mean you know the Lord, doesn't mean necessarily that you've submitted to Him. And children, I would speak to you specifically. It is important that you stop and think about this question. We love you. We're glad that you're here. We're glad that you're a part of the church. We're glad that we get to see you every day. Our lives in worship are better when you are here. I even say that to the babies that make noise. But as you grow up in the church, you need to make sure that you don't just live on your parents' faith. That they know Jesus, that they've submitted to him, that they love him, that he's defining their lives. You you need to think through that yourself. Develop your own faith, develop your own repentance, develop your own obedience to the Lord. Don't just try to mooch off of mom and dad the whole time. Get to know the Lord yourself. And just because you're here doesn't mean that you get saved like it's, you know, um, kind of a right of coming into the building. Now, I say that to the kids, but interestingly, I say that actually to the older saints in the room as well. There has historically in the South been a category for the moral good civilian that is constant in church but knows not the Lord. 
right? They're, they're a good businessman or woman. They're uh, a good citizen. They vote all the right ways that they're supposed to vote. Uh, they're a good neighbor. They may be very friendly, may be very cordial, but they do not know the Lord. And again, I would say to you, dear friend, even though you're not a child of this church, we're glad that you're here. And we want you to be a part of us. We want you to know the Lord, but please stop and think. Do you know Jesus? Do you know what faith is in Christ to believe in him? Do you know what repentance is to express sorrow for your sin? To bow the, the knee before the Lord to say, I, honestly, I can't save myself. <laughs> I can't navigate what comes after death. In fact, I don't even know what is after death unless you tell me. Because death is a place I haven't been yet. By the time I get there, it's too late. Instead, the Lord here is challenging that type of thinking to say, look, you need Friend, to wrestle with your own spiritual condition. You need to wrestle with your own heart. You need to wrestle with your own thoughts to bow the knee before the Lord. The good news is that you've already seen what his heart is. His heart is to bring broken people into his presence. That wonderfully could include you today. Bow the knee. Repent for sin. And hope in Jesus. It's weirdly not complicated. In fact, actually, it's so not complicated that a child can do it. But so deep that You'll spend all eternity figuring out exactly what that means and never finish. Chapter 57, I didn't read it, but I'm going to cover kind of loosely. The, it really kind of falls into two parts. Your ESV handy, handily has it divided for you. The first part kind of then gives a, a stern warning to kind of warn the people of God of the danger of idolatry. That it is so easy for even this God who wishes to bless us, who's given his law to us that is good, he's told us how to live, and he said, look, I'm going to be generous with you and constantly rewarding you when you do it. Verses 1 through 13 largely present a warning to a people that have easily and actively bonded themselves to idols instead of to the Lord. Rather than obeying, rather than repenting, rather than delighting in God, they've actively worked to bond themselves to evil, to idols. Now, I would say uh, we need to make sure that we don't reduce idolatry in our current setting to a caricature. Right? I mean, it's becoming increasingly less so every day, I guess, now. With We have currently, what, a pending court case in our country with a guy knocking down a statue to Satan and whatever that meant and all that mess. But by and large, when we deal with idolatry, it's important that we as a, as a people don't reduce it to like a, a like comedy caricature, that we don't reduce it to like a Looney Tunes cartoon where it becomes something so kind of over-the-top ludicrous that it, it's not actually a danger to us. Remember, this is really what's fallen prey, or I mean, what has happened to the people who uh, they've fallen prey to it, the the irresponsible leaders who have not led God's people the way that they're supposed to, and instead what they've let is their own desires, their own thinking, their own thoughts, their own rules, and their own ways have kind of propagated. And what they've ended up doing has really begun to serve themselves. 
and in fact even mocked the people of God for it. The final section ends with a much, well, more hopeful note. Look at verses 14 through 21. I'm going to read these as it it ends really where I'd, I'd like to end. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, Remove every obstruction from my people's way, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me, and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding and in the way in his own heart. I've seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace. Peace. To the far and to the near, says the Lord. I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, and it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up in mire and dirt. There's no peace, says my God, for the wicked. It's interesting, he, he kind of ends this section with a reminder of, again, he knows we're so quick to forget. We're so quick to forget and say, well, it's just not worth it. Obedience just isn't worth it. He, he, he's not going to, it's not good. I, I'm going to give up what I want. I, uh, it's just not worth it. And he says, I love this, gets back, no, it is worth it. He is the one who is high and lifted up. He's the one who inhabits eternity. He is the one who is holy. And he has planned to take the low, the broken, the sad, the destroyed, and the overcome, and to bring them into his place and to make them well, and to lift them up. Now, I make a couple of just very brief applications for this. <coughs> Excuse me. One, It is imperative that though we live in an incredibly high-income part of our state, where many of us live in circles in which most people look like finished products, it is imperative that we build in our mind and in our church and in our philosophy of ministry and how we do things here that the target for the church are the weak and wounded. That's who God's aiming for. He's aiming for broken people. He's aiming for people whose lives are a mess. He's aiming for people who have heartache, who have sorrow, who have grief. And then to make you into something different. A friend, I would remind you that if you find yourself in that situation where your life is hurting, perhaps your heart feels like it's been broken, perhaps um, you made a mess of it and you're dealing with the fallout, 
Well, the good news is the Lord has already told us that that's the kind of person that he intends to bring into his church, and that's the kind of person he intends to make completely different. So you're in the place where you're supposed to be. You found the home where you belong. Secondly, um, it should not surprise us, nor should it discourage us when we find the mess that comes with broken people. If the Lord, interestingly, if the Lord has said, look, the people that I'm going to claim for myself are the weak and the wounded, it should not surprise us. In fact, actually, it shouldn't even worry us when they come with baggage, when they come with a past, when they come with mess. Right? That's how they got weak and how they got wounded. So it shouldn't really rattle us as a church when we have these sorts of things. Now, we, we have to figure out how to deal with it together, and we have to figure out how to love each other and encourage each other and how to you know, make sure the devil doesn't get a foothold, but we don't have to worry. When we have a messy church, that should not be a point of alarm for us. It just gives us the, the, the paths to care for one another. In fact, actually, what it should really give us opportunity to do first, or third point application here, is it should really give us opportunity to double down and to labor to be encouragers for one another. And I I don't mean this by simply being a good, like, hype girl or hype guy, to hype everybody up and get excitement. I, I mean, like, real encouragers, which are the kind of people who come alongside you when you're weak and wounded. A real encourager is the kind of person who will put pressure on the wound to stop the bleeding, (laughs) right? I don't really need a hype guy. I need somebody who's going to help stop the bleeding. May it be that we kind of learn to be that sort of body together, that we bring the promises of God to be those bandages, that we bring the, the truth of Christ Jesus to be our hope, that we are able to build each other up in Christ and in His Word so that we may grow in grace. I would encourage you. Friends, we need to be actively learning the promises of God so that they're ready to come out of our mouths quickly. So that when we do encounter the weak and the wounded, we're ready to just have the right words kind of tumble out. It's imperative that we learn them. And in fact, actually, for some of us, it it is very hard for us to be very useful in the church because we just don't know what God has even promised in the first place. And so we end up offering kind of just bland hope instead. Instead of the words of Jesus himself, the word of God. He loves us and he's pledged to take care of us. Peace, peace, those that seem far off and to those that seem near, peace, says the Lord, for he will heal us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. May we be quick to share it with one another as the words of encouragement and life for Christ's sake. Amen.